1: Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording.
2: This is Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Never say never, but never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. Everybody love everybody. We will call it the golden standard. And this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th national
0: championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. What you could do is is, you could have a barbecue on that head. good time. you know what I mean? On Sports Radio 960 AM, double West VT. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare chested and banging his chest. They're chasing up. They're not going to get him.
1: And now your host, Sean Stiers. Hey there. Let's roll into a brand new week. What do you say? Hope you're having a great day. April 25th. Last week of April's here. Man, this month has just flown right by, hasn't it? Has for me anyway. But NFL draft starts Thursday in Las Vegas. No first-round picks this year for either the Bears or the Colts. So it's going to be kind of a weird draft. You know, if you're in this area, you're a fan of one of those teams, you know, in terms of, you know, teams we cover and all that kind of stuff. Cal Hamilton, of course, expected to go in the first round Thursday. Marcus Freeman, I saw him on the NFL Network this afternoon talking up his guy. Um... So you know, again, draft coming up. We'll we'll talk more about that a little bit in the six o'clock hour tonight. As rapid fire in rapid fire, and of course throughout the week, we'll we'll have more NFL draft talk. But today is about the blue gold game. Notre Dame spring football practice in the books. Marcus Freeman and the Fighting Irish on the clock now, and that clock could be ticking for 131 days, maybe a little bit short of 131, but. Little over thirty-one hundred hours or so until the Fighting Irish and Ohio State Buckeyes kick off their twenty twenty-two seasons in Columbus, Ohio. And that means this past Saturday's Blue Gold game, of course, the last chance we uh, had to uh, you know to see the Irish for about three and a half months or so. Training camp will open up in August. Who knows how much we'll get to see once camp does open? You know, we got one. Full practice this spring, a handful of other practices where we got to see drills at the start of practice and that kind of stuff. Got to talk to all the coaches and players and all that stuff, which was great. But just in terms of eyes on what we got to saw or what we got to see, you know, then we, of course, we got to see Saturday's scrimmage. Technically, the 15th practice of the spring, but obviously not as much practice. You know, it's, you, know you got two teams that were drafted. They were mostly live out there, and it's not like they were stomping down plays and saying, oh, hold it hold it do that over again so you know scrimmaged out there and uh some good stuff some bad stuff uh the new man in charge marcus freeman here he is with some thoughts initial thoughts on what he saw in saturday's blue gold game
2: well (laughs) um as i told the guys i I couldn't be more proud of just the Collective of 15 practices um, to end it like that. I mean, you couldn't have scripted a better way um, to end it on the last play. So, you know, this group has a lot of momentum right now, you know, continue to form our identity. Um, but it's really good to, to finish that way. No injuries for, uh, for for the most part. We stayed pretty healthy. And so uh, I was very pleased with today, but also the, the entirety of spring. So.
1: Had a good spring. You know, he was happy with what he saw in the spring. Talked about that ending on that last play. I'm, mean, You know, Steve Angeli, the freshman quarterback, runs, dives for the pylon. His time expires, gives the gold team the win. He's a freshman, early enrollee. You know, makes, makes the play of the game, really. Fun way for it to end. But, I mean, you know, the score of the game, the blue-gold game, that's, you know, it's always completely irrelevant what the actual score is. Because it's the blue gold game. It's literally not whether you win or lose, but how they play (laughs) the game. Uh, You know, and some players played a lot better than others. And then there was Drew Pine, who did not have a good game. He had a good stretch of about four minutes or so at the end of the first half when he led the blue on that touchdown drive, but it was, I mean, it was very up and down, topsy turvy for Drew Pine throughout the day and, you know when i say the day really he only played a half but he was inconsistent throwing the ball now it was windy out there not sure you know what kind of effect that had on him because he wasn't available to talk to after the game don't know what kind of factor that was you know he looked like he was rushing things didn't set his feet very well you know when it was time to throw he looked like he either rushed his reads or just didn't make good reads you know combination of both maybe he was throwing low he was throwing high he was throwing behind guys he was just kind of all over the place and you know you know that that back shoulder catch by Braden Lindsey not a good throw by Drew Pine but Lindsey bailed him out made a really nice catch on it here's what Marcus Freeman had to say about the quarterback Drew Pine
2: yeah I think it was I mean a little up and down you know I know I think maybe there was two interceptions in the first half but in it's so easy to, to look at the quarterback. That's the position, you know, it's the position that you're going to get the praise. You're going to get the blame, you know, and that's why it's been important for me to continue to meet with those guys because I have to continue to to think the way they think. And so um, a couple of them were back balls a couple of them were you know it, it's not always on the quarterback you know and, and we don't turn the ball over we know that we have to take care of the football but it's a collective part that we have to everybody make sure we're on the same page and and you know there's got to be guys that make the quarterback look good right and that's the challenge like it's not always about making a perfect throw but we have to have some guys that can make them look good and so um we'll evaluate it but you know I was listening he played I don't know how many plays in the first half got zero break. Um, I'm really proud of him stepping up and playing for both teams.
1: Yeah, how much that had to do with it, I don't know. But they chose to do that as well because, again, it's a scrimmage. It's not like you had to put him out there for you know consecutive drives all that time. You could have subbed somebody in on one side or the other for you know even just a couple of plays to give him a little bit of a break if you wanted to. And, you know, yeah, it's not all on the quarterback, but what we saw Saturday – it was 99% on the quarterback. It was on him. I'm sorry. Um, Pine, you know, he because, again, he played for both sides because Tyler Buckner wasn't available due to the ankle injury. This much is true. 9 of 10 for 56 yards with a short touchdown pass to Andrew yanashak And I'm sure, you know, you had him catching a, a touchdown on your Game Squares card, but so that you know that's what he did with the blue team 9 of 10 56 yards per- completion percentage looked great from that aspect not a ton of yards you know 9 9 completions 56 yards 13 of 23 for 129 yards no touchdowns both interceptions while playing for the blue team now the gold team who we went 13 of 23 for had Michael Mayer and he didn't do much in the first half until Pine finally found him a couple times on that last drive. And, you know, Lindsay on that team as well, that catch that I talked about where he bailed him out with that back shoulder throw. If you combine all the numbers, though, for, for what he did for the blue and the gold, and they did separate the numbers on the stat sheet, he was 22 of 33, 185 yards. So 66%. And now that alone, just like, oh, 22, 33, 185. okay very short touchdown pass to Januszak the two interceptions and uh, the two interceptions said much more about his day than the 66% you know neither one of them you know like again like Marcus Freeman saying well it's not on the quarterback both interceptions were on the quarterback the throws that were low into the ground those especially were on the quarterback the throws that were behind receipt you know because there's there were a couple times it's like well was that a miscommunication in you know in in route did you know did pine think that the receiver was going to do one thing he did another you know that there were a couple of those out there how much of that i don't know but there were just a lot of really inaccurate balls thrown one of them being the interception by Jordan Batello, and here is Marcus Freeman on the uh, converted defensive end. Now, Rover for the Fighting Irish.
2: He's done a good job. You know, he's played Rover, Viper, and um, again, he's a guy when the ball's live, he runs, he hits, he's physical, um, he makes plays, and so he's a guy that is going to be a huge asset for this team.
1: Yeah, I mean, he has shown his versatility and moving off that Viper defensive end. Uh, Freeman pretty short and to the point on Batello, but you know he's at Rover now. Jordan Batello, five tackles and the interception looks good. Good option for Al Golden, you know, to go along with Jack Kaiser there at Rover. It'll be interested to see kind of what that looks like and maybe how it progresses uh, once they get to to training camp in the fall and into the season. Like does does Batello become you know like maybe a third down type guy? It'll be I'll be really curious to see just the the length that he provides. And you could see that with that interception that he had as well, dropping back into coverage. The other interception, Maris Leofau had it and we got to see him for the first time in a long time Saturday, because of course he broke his ankle in training camp last August, but uh, you know, he was in line to be the will linebacker at the time when we got to see him flash some of his stuff Saturday.
2: Yeah, it's good to see eight flying around, you know, I've missed him seeing him out there and again, he, when the bullets are live, he's going, you know, and now he has to make better decisions after making make an interception. And, you know, I'm, the ref made me aware of semantics he did, which that's again, that's learning. Like you can't do things in practice. I don't care if it's practice 15 or practice one, you can't do things in practice that you don't do in the game. And it's continuing to mature our whole team, not just marriage, but mature and understand the actions and the things you do in practice are going to be a reflection of what you do in the game. And so um, it was really good to see him make an interception, and make a lot of plays. But we, as a football team, have to continue to mature and understand that you know energy and excitement is one thing, but hurting our football team is another.
1: Yep, good learning moment happened in the spring, so something you can take care of now. And and with with Leofield out all of last season, that allowed the emergence of D- J.D. Bertrand last year, and he ended up leading the Irish with 101 tackles which is almost twice as many as the next closest guy Drew White had 55 behind him so Leifau now is back Drew White is gone Leifau looks a little thicker a little stronger moves moves really well still had 3 tackles including a tackle for loss Saturday so we saw good things from him Bertrand didn't play this spring because he had surgery on his wrist so it's expected you know that it'll be Leifau at the will linebacker Bertrand at the mike linebacker that's a pretty exciting combination and just the defense as a whole look pretty darn good i think under al golden
2: yeah you know what the ability in the plus territory to create turnovers is huge you know and and there was times i think the office was running the ball and running the ball then they tried to create a pass but the the ability to to keep teams out of the end zone um was was really big and so i know towards the end of the first half the offense scored i think to make it 10 nothing but um to keep those guys at the three points when there was multiple times being on the plus side of 50. I thought they did a good job.
1: First time that Al Golden has been a defensive coordinator in, what, 17 years now. Didn't bring a ton of pressures. What You know, we saw him bring bring them from some different place, places when he did. 15 total tackles for loss between the two split defensive units. Pretty nice number that they had there. Riley Mills looked really good, three tackles for loss. Prince Colley had a couple tackles for loss. Brandon Joseph had one. He looked good out there. And uh, other side of the ball, guy who looked good was freshman running back Jadarian Price, someone who's been making a splash, uh, you know, as an early enrollee this spring. Nine carries, just 17 yards. Team as a whole didn't run the ball very well, but eight catches for 104 yards coming out of the backfield, including the 51-yard touchdown catch on the short pass from Steve Angeli. Here's some Marcus Freeman on the freshman running back Jadarian Price.
2: Yeah, and I think I said it on the air. It's just that we are, I think, 14 incoming freshmen. And, and, you know, the misconception is that if you come in early, like, it's going to give you a better chance to play. And, and you know what? If, if you're a guy that's going to be able to play early, you're going to come in in June or coming in January. You're going to, we're going to know. And he's one of those guys. He's going to be able to help us. And uh, you saw it from the very first and second spring practice. And so he's a guy that understands. Um, the big pictures in terms of the playbook um, he still has to learn and do but he's a guy that can make things happen um, that the transition from high school to college wasn't too big for
1: him nope look good look good out there that's for sure Jadarian Price you know didn't see a lot of Chris Tyree he had a carry early and that was pretty much it good day for Andre Estime, I thought as well the big fella but now it's all about the season opener 131 days from now at ohio state so what does marcus freeman see as the biggest challenges that he has between now and then
2: well there's i mean there's a lot of different things that you have to do in, in the month of may and and how do you evaluate the spring from a, a big picture point of view you know the player is going to be gone and and you're also gonna have to go on the road and our coach is going to be recruiting i'm gonna have to do some things with um you know just notre dame period and i'll be busy but um we're going to look back and try to see how much we can learn from the spring, the teaching tapes, you know, the evaluation, and what do we truly need to improve on as we head into June, right? When they come back and we know coach Bayless is going to have them in the best shape um, they can possibly be in, but what do we need to do in June, right? We have a little bit more time to be able to utilize football in June. And so how can we capitalize off that time that we could spend with them? <laughs>
1: I'll tell you what. Marcus Freeman's only been a head coach for what a little bit less than five months, I guess now. But um, is that officially his first word salad? You know, there was there was some stuff in there, but I think he's got the word salad game down on point. You know, uh, that was forty five seconds of saying things, but not really being overly specific about what those things are. Well, we're gonna look at film, and we're gonna recruit, and we're gonna do some things, and we got June coming up. Okay. But what did he learn about his team and what did he learn about himself as well in his first spring as a head coach about the team
2: for sure is that they respond to being challenged. And that was what I spent a lot of time in those off days. Okay. What challenge do they need today? Right. You can't just say, hey, let's go do the same thing and go get through practice. No, it's like they, they gotta be challenged. And so I spent a lot of time of thinking about what they need for that day and a way to challenge them. Um, I get 10 minutes with them and then, our team meetings. I mean, it's all I get because everybody needs their meetings from the head coach, special teams to the position coaches. And so um, we have a a strict time that we have to be off the practice field. And so I spent a lot of time for those preparing for those 10 minutes what challenge I wanted to uh, present to them on that day. And so they respond to challenges. For me, um, it's just continuing to learn, right? That how do you continue to get better? How do you continue to pick the brains of others? How do you continue to evaluate yourself? And it's a big part of it is taking feedback Feedback, you know, and I know everybody knows Coach Orgeron was here and, and but what I told him, I said, if you're going to be here, right, I want feedback, I want things you've seen and, and that's the only way to grow, right, nobody wants to hear what they're not good at or what you need to improve at, but when you have guys here and, and you have guys around you, right, our staff, really, really good coaches, how do we, heck,
1: take feedback, seek feedback, and learn from it and grow from it. See, now that was a good answer. That was a good answer right there for Marcus Freeman. Challenged his team this spring. His team responded to the challenges that he gave them. You know, challenge everything was one of the first directives he gave his team back in December when he was hired, and it sounds like he's pretty happy with their first responses to the challenge. And then you've got a head coach like Ed Orgeron who comes in. He was at Notre Dame a couple of weeks ago. wasn't just window dressing Though listening to what Marcus Freeman said, he asked an experienced head coach who's won a national championship for feedback on what he saw and you know when he was watching practice and all that stuff. So uh, that's you gotta gotta love that because again, Freeman has talked to you know this is a first time head coach. He's thirty six years old. Orgeron has done it. He's been at it for a long time, even though he's not a head coach right now. Al Golden has done it, you know, and and he's talked about that being a benefit to him being on the staff. A guy with head coaching experience. And finally, for Marcus Freeman, how can he now be a better coach? Yeah, recruiting never stops.
2: That's the first thing, recruiting, 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 right? Today's recruiting, tomorrow's recruiting. Every day we have to recruit and every coach has to have that mindset. It's about, we have to get the best players in the country that fit this place. And so that's an everyday responsibility and everyday focus. Um, In terms of, of how do I become a better coach? And I mean, there's many different ways to enhance what you do. You got to be able to talk to other people um, that are Currently head coach or former head coaches look at situational football, um, continue to look back at this spring and say, okay, where what positions, what schematic uh, areas do we need to improve at, And then try to address them, not not wait to fall camp as much as what can we do in June? What can we do in July? You know, you got some coaches going away, but coaches that are here, we have to all maximize the opportunities that we have to be around our players.
1: Recruiting never stops. Recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. Got to love it. You know, how do you become a better coach? Recruit better. Continue to get better talent. Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Dabo, Urban Meyer, you know, when, when he was still coaching in college. Common denominator is not just the, you know, the wins of the national championships. What got them there was recruiting the elite talent. And uh, that has been the recurring theme for Marcus Freeman since he took over as head coach. Get the top talent. To sign on the dotted line and you know that helps overcome some shortfalls in that uh, that may occur from you know here or there in some other places as as a as a rookie head coach as a guy who hasn't quite done it yet you know one game that he's got one game under his belt as a head coach so i uh, gotta love to hear that it was a big recruiting weekend they got a commitment over the weekend all kinds of good things still happening for the fighting Irish on those recruiting trails and again I mean we've got three plus months now until fall camp begins so we'll have more we've got um some uh some comments from a lot of different uh, Notre Dame coaches and players because we got so much of it this spring we haven't had a chance to uh to play all of it for you yet so we'll uh, you know we'll have more uh coming up here over the next few weeks you know some of that kind of stuff you'll be able to uh to hear as we work our way into the summer and toward fall training camp coming up in August. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk more about the blue-gold game and some thoughts from Brian Driscoll from irishbreakdown.com, what he saw, good, bad, ugly, some of it, you know, better. We'll, we'll talk to him about that coming up next, though. Uh, We're brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend. Sports fans, this Bud's for you. Tim Girl State Farm Insurance, save money on home and auto insurance with Tim, serving both Indiana and Michigan. Call 574-232-9981. Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, serving our community while serving Michigan's most favorite pizza since 1978. And the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. hunger's a story we can end. Find out how at FeedIndiana.org. A timeout, Brian Driscoll from IrishBreakdown.com. Talking more Notre Dame football next on Budweiser's Weekday sports beat. Well, it is that time. Brian Driscoll, IrishBreakdown.com. Going to jump on and continue some Notre Dame football conversation. Gorgeous day to be uh, out at the Blue Gold game Saturday, huh?
3: Oh, it was. And it was even better for me because I was kind of indoors a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. But it was like an open area. Indoor, outdoor. Nice beautifulness, but then also not get the sunburn.
1: Nice. Very nice.
3: Great combination. Yeah,
1: absolutely. (laughs) um well let's let's just jump right in and talk about drew pine um Mm -hmm. pretty up and down day for him what did you see as the biggest culprits what you know let let me ask you this first of all because you were you know darren and i were calling the game so you know we did have the window open so we could tell more than probably if you were sitting in the regular press box you know like just how windy it 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 Mm -hmm. seemed out there how how much impact do you do you think that had? You know, the, the wind may have had, and then just kind of continue with you know your, your your overall what you thought of Drew Pine's day.
3: I really didn't think the wind played a factor into it, Sean. To be honest with you, I, I look at Drew, and I, the wind doesn't impact the footwork, and he was rushing throws and, right. and I talked about that as well, not yeah. seeing guys come open and you know all those type of things that aren't impacted by like maybe a couple deep balls might, but he didn't really throw the ball down the field because the wind really impacts you the way it was Saturday. If you're throwing it like vertically, well, the best throw he made all day was a vertical throws called back by a penalty, but it was the yeah, throw he, true. he made to Michael Mayer, right? He was missing on like throwing the ball over a running back's head, three, you know, five yards in front of him. Yeah. Right. It was rushing his footwork. It was rushing his mechanics. It was just, he was either going through his reads too slow or too late, and I think those were bigger issues. He just didn't look comfortable, and 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 that's what was weird, John. That that's not what we expected from Drew Pine. I mean, we saw him against Wisconsin and Cincinnati last year, look poised and confident and hailing the offense, and we we just didn't see that guy.
1: You know, and we talked last week about this being an opportunity for him with with no Tyler Buckner because he was going to get more reps and I think everyone saw it as an opportunity but Mm -hmm. I think we also on Friday talked about his emotions and that how that can kind of affect him a little bit Um, just looking at him it, it almost looked like maybe he was just trying too hard at times as well would you agree with
3: that yeah and I think that's been an issue for him all spring you know, I, you know where I come down, Sean. Is I've said this. You you know my stance on this. I don't care about spring games. I don't. Right. I remember when Nate Montana won an MVP and Mark Montgomery <laughs> Van Gorder outplayed the Sean Kaiser. Right. <laughs> right. But here's here's where it becomes an issue. When you hear something that it's been a trend all spring, and then you see it in the game, that's where I get more concerned. And that's what our intel had been telling us really all spring. Every time I talked about the quarterbacks, it was. You know Drew's just really not himself. He's been struggling. He's turning the ball over a lot. He doesn't look comfortable. He's not not you know, tacking down the field as consistently. Then you see it in the game. And you're like, okay, there's something off here. And I think it, it, you know it could go back to the original thing you said, Sean, which is, you know, last year he wasn't really in the quarterback battle. It was it was it was Jack Cones. I mean, we we all know that. We said it all along. You can say it's a battle all you want, but Jack Cones going to be starter barring injury. Right. This year he's really in it. You know and he's played and he has he has you know a legitimate shot to win it and I wonder if that was the kind of thing he just was pressing like I have to go make this play and then that just gets you all out of sorts and he just wasn't able to recover and hopefully you know now you take a step away and you're able to kind of clear your head and finish school and get home and all that hopefully by that point in time he'll he will have kind of been able to clear his head a little bit and, and come back and get back to being the drew pine that you know did as well as we saw him do last year in limited opportunities. Well, and I think
1: a question that a lot of people have right now is how concerned should they be if, you know, assuming Tyler Buckner is the starter, if he were to be injured during the season, you know, how concerned should they be about that prospect?
3: I'm not concerned yet because I still put more value in what Drew Pine did against Wisconsin and Cincinnati than what I do – than than value I put on what he did in April. And I've always felt that way. I mean, and and I – you know, I said the same thing in 2015. People are like, boy, because we, we've been here before, right? Deshaun Kaiser was awful in the 2015 spring game. And the conversation was, boy, if Malik Ziger gets hurt, Notre Dame's in trouble. And I said the same thing, then i will say, no, they're going to be fine. It's a spring game, right? He still is who he is. A bad spring, a bad month of April doesn't all of a sudden mean Drew Pine is not what he's been his whole career at Notre Dame and why they recruited him in the first place. You know now if this continues in the fall and I'm getting intel two to three weeks into fall camp that Drew Pine is still struggling, then I'll get concerned. Yeah. But I'm I'm just not concerned yet because, and, and I'm not putting my head in the sand. I'm going off what we've seen. This is this isn't the first time this has happened. When Malik Zaire ended up getting hurt, Sean Kaiser did all right. <laughs> you know he, he played pretty well that yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was arguably the the best football team that Notre Dame has had the last fifteen years. So. I'm not. I'm not concerned yet. N- knowing Drew is, I, I would hope he'll put in the work, get his mind right, and come back and be ready to, to be himself in in the fall. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Not a lot in terms of running the football. Um, just about three and a half yards per carry, pretty much across the board for both teams. Let's kind of split this. Let's talk about the offensive line first. That you know they obviously everybody was split. You didn't have a whole unit together what what did you think overall of what you saw from the offensive lineman out there
3: I liked what I saw from the line and and the big thing for us is you know we talked about it last week and and Vince and I talked about it on our show as well and it was I'm not super concerned about execution as much I mean it matters and I know Harry Easton always cares about that but for me it wasn't about that, you know, because the, the starting line wasn't going to be out there together, and and there's all types of reasons, and they're overcoming certain aspects of it. But I wanted to see them compete. I wanted to see them battle. I want to see them play hard. I want to see them driving their feet through contact, and and those are the things I saw on Saturday. You know, the execution wasn't great. The defense I thought played really well against the run. Uh, they were very gap conscious and conscious and and executed at a high level d-line played great yeah it's one of the best d-lines in the country and in our in my opinion uh the linebackers looked great especially for the blue squad brandon joseph looked like an all-american safety i mean so there's some reasons i thought the running backs grinded hard but i you know the the line's got to get better it was a very vanilla offensive game plan there was no pushing the ball down the field we didn't see the quarterback run there's a couple times let's be honest couple of those backside crashes where the guy came off the edge of Tyler Buckner's a game he's pulling that and running for 30 yards yeah you know so there was some of that as well so I just I wanted to see the compete level Sean and we saw an improved compete level we saw guys working their feet we saw some fight and I care more about that I know Harry Easton probably doesn't want to hear that but for <laughs> me I care more about that than I do they didn't execute inside zone correctly or they weren't getting off to the second level yet i'll care more about that in the fall than i do in april yeah
1: and uh, you know the running backs were the beneficiary of some short passing game and you know again they didn't have big numbers just simply running the football but i thought that there was some good stuff that we saw from those guys what'd you see
3: yeah, you know, I think sometimes, Sean, you can learn a lot more about a running back when he doesn't have giant holes to run through. You mm-hmm. know, we saw Chris Tyrenas' first carry made a great read to kind of get through the hole and then bounce it outside on a counter play. So Audrick Estime turned a couple plays where it looked like he was going to get minus two into plus four. You know, those are the things that you can see. And then, of course, in the past game, like you mentioned, there was certainly some impactful plays. And I thought Andre Estime ran really well. Numbers won't blow you away, but he was the most effective runner of the guys that got more than two carries. He averaged, you know, four and a half yards a carry. And then, you know, Jadarian Price didn't do a whole lot in the run game. I think it was like 12 yards on nine carries, but he had over 100 yards receiving. Yeah. And we saw some explosiveness there. So the running backs were everything I, I thought they would be. When you consider the circumstances, I thought they looked good and obviously we didn't see a ton of Chris Tyree and a ton of Logan Diggs, but you know, I believe you and I discussed this last week and you know, all the shows kind of blend together sometimes. But I, I know on <laughs> some show last week I said I don't really care what, about Chris Tyree and Logan Diggs. I I feel like I know what they can do. I want to see Audrick Estime and Jadarian Price show me something. And I thought they both did.
1: Yeah, I'm really especially for you know, for for a bigger back that Estime is, I really like his footwork, just the way his yeah. feet move. It's, it's he's a nimble guy. Yeah.
3: There was a guy like that. Oh, a number of years ago, real big guy that played fullback that had some really nimble feet. And I'm trying to remember what his name is. Something like, <laughs> is he on campus oh, right now? Is yeah. He, is he's he? in, he's in, he's getting his working, taking on his classes or something. Name. Yeah. yeah. Number Nick- six, name. maybe oh, Jerome Bettis. That's it. That's <laughs> right. right. That's, that's,
1: he is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Brian Driscoll with us from irishbreakdown.com. We talked a little bit about Jaden Thomas last week he made a couple of plays out there did yeah. you come away with maybe you know some some more you know higher hopes for him than maybe you would have thought going in
3: well I didn't really have any hopes at all going in that was the thing is like <laughs> think you know, i We same. had heard all the yeah we had heard all these things about how well he did in the in the practices leading up to the bowl game and 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 all these but you know then we'd get to the the very few practices we were allowed to be at and we didn't really get a chance to see anything, right? So it was like, well, I hear good things, but I don't know what the kid can do. He was injured. I mean, he played as a senior, but he had like a, a bad turf toe issue, so he was kind of slow and not explosive, which tells you a lot about his toughness, right? Because mm-hmm. let's be honest, in this day and age, there's a lot of guys that probably would have just sat out and said, hey, I'm going to start thinking about my future, but he battled through it. So it was nice to see him out there performing. And then the, the surprise for me, because he's a bigger-bodied kid, He's smooth. You talked about with Audrey your yeah. I was surprised how loose I mean, he made Ramon Henderson look bad on that one, that one play where he just kind of juiced. He uh-huh. froze him, stabbed inside, and then just outran him, caught a screen pass, and then kind of cut back outside. I didn't realize he had that in him because of, you know, again, senior year, he just didn't have any explosiveness because of the foot injury. So that was a really pleasant surprise to see Jaden Thomas, not just that he played well, but the things he was doing that I didn't know he really had in him, that was the really encouraging thing for me.
1: Yeah. Defensively, Al Golden, first defense, you touched on some of the different units a second ago. Just your thoughts on what you saw schematically from Al Golden's
3: first defense. It wasn't a super complex defense. You know, we saw some some diversity from alignment, you know, some under fronts over fronts it looked like i don't know if uh, call them like you know double legal fronts but sort of like a three-man front with like two guys on the edge you know we saw mixing up coverages a little bit it wasn't super complex what, what i liked about it sean was is it was a, it was aggressive within a relatively basic framework which is you know they brought some edge fires and you know they brought the safeties down and but they were super gap, gap conscious That's what I thought helped so much against the run game was, you know, everybody says, hey, this is your gap. Fight hard to win in your gap. And I thought that the defensive line thrived in that really well. I thought the linebackers and safeties flew around the field for the most part. I think the biggest thing for me, too, was there was plenty of opportunities for the tackling to be a problem. And it wasn't really for the most part. With the of a couple of plays. And we mentioned the one where, where Ramon Henderson got juked by Jaden Thomas. But I thought the tackling was sound. The biggest thing for me, Sean, is one of the things that I observed about last year's team is it was really fast. And I thought it was coached well. You know, there's a couple moments here and there where they, you know, they were obviously still adapting. But I thought it was coached relatively well. There were two things about last year's team that I didn't love. They weren't very good tacklers, mm-hmm. which the two previous teams weren't really good tacklers. The 2019 defenses weren't great tacklers either. And and the other part was they weren't a super physical defense last year. They were talented and athletic and rangy, but they weren't a super physical team. True. There wasn't a lot of big thumps. I thought the defense, more than anything, the physicality is something that I really liked from them and then, of course, not just tackling in space, but so much of tackling is about taking proper angles and flying to the football and just not leaving it, hey, if you make one guy miss, that's okay because i got two other dudes that are coming to each side of you. You've got nowhere to go. It's saw a lot of that on Saturday, and, and I thought that was very encouraging because the thing about a spring game is sometimes it's like, well, this side didn't play well, so that's bad. Well, no, they didn't run the ball great because the defense played really well. Yeah. And I think that's more what I what I liked is, is when the offense made big plays, it was guys stepping up and making plays, and when they couldn't, it was because the defense was playing really well. And honestly, at the end of the day, that's really what you want to see out of a spring game. You don't want to see one side dominating over the other. That usually says more about maybe the other side that's getting dominated not being that good than it does about that one unit being good. Sure. With a few exceptions like the 2017 O line. But I, I really liked what I saw from Al Golden's defense, and – you know the defensive line playing as well as they did fundamentally, technically, just goes to show that with you, know, Mike Elson did a great job at Notre Dame for years. But Notre Dame's not missing a beat without Washington, and you know perhaps could even be better at that position. Which is, it says a lot about Marcus Freeman too. It is hard to replace someone who had the success Mike Elson had, right? And then say you're just as good, if not better. And I think that's exactly what he did at the defensive line yeah, position.
1: Yeah, a lot of good, a lot of good stuff that came out of that. And I mean. To to your point about the tackling, I think everyone was was frustrated last year watching it because you'd see guys get to posi- you know, get in the right position, but then whiff on a tackle, and like that's one of the knocks that I've heard on Kyle Hamilton right mm-hmm. now is he would you know come downhill, get there, and then he, you know he's like so aggressive that he's missing the tackle once he gets right. there, and there was just it wasn't just it wasn't limited to him last year so I, that's that's a great point yeah, it's it's a great agreed. sign that you, we, you know, it we've wasn't already just seen last year yeah it's,
3: it's been an, I mean I go back to the Louisville game to kick off the 2019 season I mean go to the Michigan game in 2019 you know that this is this has been a problem I think for a few years uh, and at least for this game it looked like they've definitely taken steps to kind of rectify the problem in a number of different ways but the best way to be good at tackling is to swarm to the ball yeah or if the first guy misses as soon as you make your juke to make that first guy miss somebody else is drilling you and that's something that I really liked from Saturday.
1: One final thought, uh, the two kickers, Josh Bryan, Blake Groupie, they missed hmm. combined to miss 3 out of 4 field goals and they weren't long field, you know, 38, no. 41, 47 was the longest. That's uh that's a pretty big concern to me. <laughs> right now.
3: Well, again, it goes back to I could I could I could spin this, right, and say, well, look, that was more affected by the wind than the quarterback play. Right. And and I think there is something to that in in theory, but the misses they had were not like, I had it right, but the wind pushed it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, they weren't close. I mean, they started out and stayed out, you know what I mean? And I think that's the bigger concern for me. And the second concern I have is, this isn't the first time that that's reared its ugly head, according to the people that I've talked to. This has been an issue... All, many times including sometimes you guys were there but also sometimes i had you know people that i knew that were at practices and it's like you know I mean, kicker started off okay made their first three or four but then they just started missing and that's that's problematic and like the punting wasn't great either but you had the the starting goalie for the soccer team out there kicking as the punter on saturday and he had some nice ones and some not nice ones which you expect from a guy who's this isn't his primary sport, but you could say, look, the, they got a freshman punter coming in on scholarship. They got a kid coming in uh, from Harvard that's transferring in, so like their starting punters or the battle for the punter weren't there on Saturday. You can't say that about kicker. Right. These are the two guys you're going to roll with, and it was also you kicked the you kicked one out of bounds. It it was it was concerning. It was yep. concerning. So they're going to have to. That's definitely have to get that figured out because that that that's the kind of thing that'll lose you a game. And, and you know, we talk about these big games to win and, yep. and that's you, you can't afford to do that.
1: You go on the road at Ohio State, you're already a yeah. ten and a half point underdog as of as of right now. Yeah. You know, you obviously yeah. you know you can't miss a, a couple of chip shot field goals and think that you're right. gonna hang around on the road in a game like that.
3: Well, I mean, and that's what I loved about that, you know, that twenty fifteen team. You go down to Clemson and I mean the one thing about Justin Yoon is he may not have had a huge, huge leg, but He was automatic. I mean, he was money. You just Mm -hmm. knew, and you think about the 48-yard field goal in the rain against Clemson, it's like, I'm nervous about a 35-yard field goal in perfect conditions at this point in time. You know, and that's definitely not, because that also then affects your play calling. Hey, we got to take a shot here because we're not in good field goal range, and sometimes that can then lead to, you know, hey, we tried to take a chance because we didn't trust our kickers and Uh it results in a turnover or a mistake or a sack or whatever. And it can really have an impact on more than just your kicking, it can have an impact on decisions that you make or execution aspects of it when it comes to your offense and defense as well. And that's just not – that's not where we going to be. But, look, Brian Mason is, is is an excellent special teams coach, and I'm sure that, you know, Blake Groupie has a strong history as being more consistent than what we've seen. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give him another chance in the fall, but I don't leave the spring – with the warm and fuzzies about the Blake's kicking situation. <laughs> yeah,
1: because, I mean, you know, the dimensions <laughs> of the football field for Blake Groupie are still the same. It's just That's that right. the stakes are a lot higher at Notre Dame compared yeah, exactly. to Arkansas I mean, the State.
3: crowds are going to be a little bigger and a little louder. Yes. <laughs> and there's a lot more on the line.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh,
3: no, no doubt about it. That's
1: exactly but, yeah. right. All right, Brian Driscoll, IrishBreakdown.com. What else you got going on over there right now?
3: Well, in about forty minutes, we're going to start a live show on our Irish Breakdown YouTube channel. We're going to carry the announcement of two thousand twenty-three offensive lineman Sam Pendleton, who's going to make a decision tonight between Notre Dame, Michigan, Florida, and NC State. So we'll okay. talk about that. If they get him, we'll talk about what it means for Notre Dame. If they don't get him, we'll talk about what they do next. So uh, you can join us on our YouTube channel at six thirty, and then of course, lots of updates on this past week against visitors and i'm going to kind of talk about sort of a post-spring look at the team some breakout players what we learned that type of stuff so i'll have that all week at irishbreakdown.com as okay well.
1: sounds good and we'll have ryan roberts on tomorrow and we'll talk about what happens with that commitment tonight and so.
3: he's super fired up this is draft week for ryan he's really that's, that's <laughs> right it's like, hey dude you got some recruiting you got to handle this week too like
4: oh yeah i know I, I, I got it. I got it.
3: he's got
1: it all going on that's right that's all right. right sounds good thanks as always brian i'll talk Talk to you later. Thanks for having me on. Yep, absolutely. Brian Driscoll, IrishBreakdown.com. We'll take a timeout. We come back. Socks are uh, White Sox, uh, battling the injuries right now. We'll talk about that. Bobby Hensley, he's on his way back from Talladega. He'll join me for rapid fire in the 6 o'clock hour. Yes, he does have a driver in the car with him. So uh, he will join me, and we'll talk about uh, – what he saw at Talladega, as well as other topics from the NFL draft to uh, baseball and more. That's coming up in the six o'clock hours. Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Yeah. Budweiser's weekday sports beat continues on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Well, tell you what, the injury bug just keeps biting the White Sox. Eloy Jimenez, the former South Bend Cub, is on the 10 day injured list with a right hamstring strain and um, they they put him on the 10-day list right now but he's expected to miss six to eight weeks due to this so it sounds like it's more than a hamstring strain he's supposed to be evaluated today and uh, the White Sox are hoping for some more information could find out more could get an announcement by tomorrow it sounds like but this is the second year in a row that Jimenez has you know had the injury bug Body. I mean, he had a, a ruptured left pectoral last year and he played in just 55 games and uh, now already just a couple weeks into the season this year, another injury, this one, the hamstring. He has just one home run so far through 11 games, but like even last year when he was limited to 55 games to, due to that pectoral, 10 home runs and uh, 37 RBIs, so solid numbers there, his um last full season was 2019. Now, of course, 2020 was the pandemic season, so that was shortened for everybody, but thirty-one home runs as rookie in 2019 with 79 RBIs. But another injury for Jimenez, and the Sox now have eight players on the injured list. Ryan Burr, Garrett Crochet, Joe Kelly, Lance Lynn, Jonathan Stever, Yon Mancata, and your main. Uh, your mean Mercedes and they just brought AJ Pollock off the injured list he had a hamstring and Lucas Giolito pitched yesterday he just came off the injured list after an oblique so uh, just yet another injury for the White Sox and they have lost seven in a row they're off today before hosting Kansas City tomorrow Sports Center update coming up next Bobby Hensley joins me for rapid fire in the six o'clock hour as well on Budweiser's weekday sports beat you are listening to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat with Sean Styers. On Sports Radio, 960 a.m., WSBT. Rapid Fire starts now on Sports
0: Radio 960 AM, WSBT. And now your host, Sean Stiers.
1: Yeah, and I'm joined by Bobby Hensley.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hurling insults (laughs) off the air in my direction, you know. I I'm just... sorry.
4: The truth hurts. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't
1: know about that, he's coming back from Talladega right now. Here's what I want to know: um, Is Bush Light is that like required for entrance when you go to one of these things? You know, like down there, Talladega. Like, does everyone just walk around with buckets of Bush Light?
4: Um, if you don't have Bush Light shirt, hat, or a case of beer with you, they don't let you through the gate. <laughs> uh, Bush Lights, like the the fancy people drink down there.
1: That's what I thought. That's kind of what I have heard, you know. And of course, it's uh, it's it's an Anheuser Busch product, and we're proud of of you know Bush Light here, at Budweiser's weekday sports beat, and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But like to me, you know. Budweiser, Bud Light. You know, that's like the champagne of beers. You know, but but like you said, down there it sounds like it's like it it like Bush Light or nothing, I think pretty much, huh?
4: Yeah, there's a lot of um of a another brand that's pretty low rent beer. But Bush Light was even this morning <laughs> I looked and I saw several crushed cans on the ground outside my campsite.
1: Yeah, I was I was um with some friends. A while back. And you know, we were in a hotel. There's a liquor store right next door. I was, you know, the one elected to make her. And this wasn't like back in the college days, you know, when you're scraping up dimes and stuff like that to go buy some beverages. Um, you know, I was supposed to get the Bud Light and came back with Bush Light because the you know, like the packaging and stuff is really fairly similar. Like when you you know sit and look at like if you just, you know, don't look that closely. And so I kind of get. If
4: your eyes are closed, they look very similar.
1: They're not that dissimilar. Now, don't, you know, I asked, something else I asked you off the, well, no, I'm not even going to go there because then you'll just start hurling insults again. So what you're saying is Bush Light is the official beer of the southern part of our country, pretty much, the southeastern.
4: Well, definitely in the NASCAR circles, if you win the uh, the pole, meaning you qualified first, they give you the Bush Poll Award. Okay. Well so they definitely endorse and enjoy it.
1: That branding has gone a long way. It sounds like you know they they know their fan base, I guess. Uh, so so you're coming back from Talladega. Who won this thing? Was it Ross Chastain? Did did, did I see it, that?
4: That is correct. He's uh, his owner is Pitbull, by the way.
1: Really. Okay.
4: Yeah, a little fun fact.
1: All right. Interesting. Yeah, he uh, – Go
4: ahead. I would say he won. He was an underdog. Nobody saw him coming. Last lap, there was a big wreck, and he pulled through.
1: What – this was your first trip to Talladega. What – and I think when I when I talked to you last week, you called this a bucket list type thing. What? What about Talladega makes this a bucket list type destination event?
4: It's one of the the main tracks that everybody that follows NASCAR wants to go to because they talk about the facility itself. It's a it's a party from all week, from Thursday until Monday morning. It's they the facility is so large. They have real roads in the infield, and there's just a party. Every 10 feet, different campsite with a different vibe, a different party. There's a, so many events to go to. It's just one of those things that's. If you're old, you might not enjoy it as much, but for anyone uh, below the age of forty, there's a whole lot of fun and a lot of trouble you can get into.
1: <laughs> I bet there is. Now, you've been to Daytona as well, right? Correct. So how do how do the two events, tracks, the whole thing how do how, how does how do they compare to each other?
4: Well, I think that Daytona, when you go there for like the Daytona 500, it's more about the race, and you enjoy all the pageantry. It's kind of like the Indy 500. It's the Super Bowl. It's a mm-hmm. big event. There's stars everywhere. It's all about that race and getting your season started. Whereas at Talladega, it's how hungover is everyone during the race?
1: (laughs) And how hungover were you during the race?
4: (laughs) I was good. I was good all weekend. During the race, I might have enjoyed a few of uh, anheuser Bush's products. Okay. But uh, the the rest of the weekend, I was was good.
1: All right. All right. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you at all. So
4: I had to be sharp for my radio show on Monday. That's what it is.
1: That's what it's all about. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Girl insult.
1: That's right. <laughs> all right. Bobby Hensley on his way back from Talladega. Geico 500 uh, yesterday down there at Talladega. Uh, all right. So, yeah, I mean, like when I think of, I think, like, Iconic racetracks. It's like the Brickyard, you know, the Indy, you know, where the of course the Indy 500 is, you know, but the Brickyard. I think Talladega and Daytona. Like, would those three kind of be at the top of the list?
4: Yep, and uh, there's one more is Bristol that people would talk about. It's probably one yeah. of the crown jewels. At Talladega,
1: didn't they? Is it still called like the Super Speedway? Is that what they call it?
4: Yeah, it, see the thing that Talladega and Daytona have in common—they're the only two tracks on the circuit where they limit how fast the cars can go for safety reasons. So basically, the drivers are just flat out the whole time on the gas, and the yep, super speedway racing—they call it.
1: Okay, all right, that's that's you know. Part of the very little racing knowledge <laughs> that I have, that, that I knew it was the. Hey, you super know they speedway. turn left.
4: That's all you got to know. That's right. That's
1: <laughs> right. All right. He's Bobby Hensley. I'm Sean Stiers. Budweiser's weekday sports beat and rapid fire. Let's talk a little NFL draft because the first round, of course, is Thursday. We've got the draft Thursday through Saturday coming up, and Kyle Hamilton. He's more likely than not going to be a first round pick and early in this draft process he was projected you know hey he might even go in the top five that seems to have kind of settled since then with talk about him going outside the top 10 even so do you buy or sell Hamilton being a top 10 pick Thursday
4: I I sell the idea of him being a top 10 pick the his time in the 40 at the Combine really hurt him and put him on a trending uh, downward, sp- not spiral necessarily, but I think he's going to fall just outside the top 10 and be one of those guys that maybe in a couple years you look at in the pros and like, wow, how did so many people pass on him based on a silly drill at one Combine?
1: Yeah. That's interesting because Marcus Freeman was on the NFL Network Today, and he was on there with Andrew Siciliano, you know, Talk. he was there mostly to talk about Kyle Hamilton, talked a little bit about Kyron Williams as well, but the 40 time obviously came up, and one thing that Marcus Freeman said, and obviously before he was the head coach, he was the defensive coordinator and was Kyle Hamilton's, you know, coach as the defensive coordinator last year. You know, they but they talked about having the GPS on him and having the ability because of those gps's you know you find out more than just what the 40 time is you know so you you know how how much a guy can actually how fast he actually plays when it you know when when it actually matters out there on the field but we know that that he plays faster than what that 40 time says but you know but you do have a couple of things it's college football compared to the NFL and these NFL guys have these hard numbers and I think they look long and hard at that 40 time and now I don't think that they're that they're necessarily yeah I I think that that having that slower 40 time when you're talking about how a guy transitions from college to the NFL because how many really good players have you seen you know have we seen they go from college to the NFL and they and they don't pan out for one reason or another I think that it's that there's just enough doubt that some of these guys have some of these general managers have about taking someone because safety is a non-traditional position anyway when you're talking about the top 10 and when you've got that sort of you know little cloud of doubt that seed of doubt that gets planted in these NFL general managers minds I think that is enough to scare some guys off like I think Kyle Hamilton is still going to go in the first round somewhere but I'm going to sell him as a top 10 pick as well. You know, I think he's a great player and you know, I think there are a lot of good things to like about him, but I I just I think that that is enough the fact that he ran a slow enough 40 time at the combine and also was just you know a little bit slower even at the pro day. I think it's enough to scare some some uh, some some execs often. So I I I don't see him going in the top ten either. I you know again I still think he's going to be a first round guy, but I don't think he's going to end up in the top ten.
4: And I think some of that stuff's a little weird anyway. Because you know speed for a safety, speed at every position matters. But I wish that that forty yard time would have pads on because there's a difference between straight line running from a. Stop oh, absolutely.
1: To, yeah. To
4: like put the pads on them. Let him run with that on, and let's see how, what the game speed is. Because when you talk about just running in a straight line, well, then every Olympic sprinter must be a terrific football player. Right. I, I, I get, you know, you don't want slow well, guys that are going to get burned in the back of the secondary.
1: Willie Galt, I, Willie Galt was world, you know, had world-class Olympic speed. He was okay as an NFL wide receiver, and he got taken in the first round because of all that speed. Well,
4: and who was it for, didn't the Cowboys have a guy in the 70s that was an Olympic runner, a receiver, I think? And he, same thing, he was so fast, but he, he couldn't catch the ball enough to be useful.
1: Right. You know, and, Bullet Bob so, Hayes.
4: But, Bob Hayes, yeah. And then you look at Hamilton at that position, he's still going to be the best safety in the draft. So it almost comes down to, like, what you said, is what do you value that position as, and what how quick of a turnaround do you expect? Cause I think... If you draft a safety in the top of the first round, you're expecting them to start their first year.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, he's going to have to start in his first year. Uh, you know, I was just watching the, the uh, NFL Network had – I can't remember exactly what it was. It, basically, they kind of had the, some of these storylines from past drafts. You know, like they would go back and, you know, here's all these different things that were in play – when they were talking about the first round of the draft, and I think it was the '05 5 draft when you had the two Auburn run, running backs, Cadillac Williams, who ended up going Ronnie to Brown. 10, and Ronnie Brown, who went to your Miami Dolphins, and Brown had this blazing 40 time, and so he ended up being you know, a really highly drafted running back in the first round. Guess who went in the third round? Frank Gore. Still playing. You know, Cadillac Williams and Ronnie Brown haven't been playing for a long time. But, you know, they they both had the better 40 times, Ronnie Brown especially. But Frank Cora ends up going in the third round. And he had the, you know, the a lot of people think a Hall of Fame type career. So, you know.
4: He, he definitely has a Hall of Fame career. But he was also coming off injuries, I believe, in college. Frank right, Cora.
1: That slowed him down. Yeah, that's right. And he
4: still lasted this long.
1: Yeah, that's right. Questions about durability and, and all that different kind of stuff. Okay, so on the subject of the NFL draft, over, under, two and a half quarterbacks that will be taken in the first round of the draft this week.
4: So three is what you're saying. I'd say under. I, there's This frustrates me every year coming into the NFL draft. And as a Dolphins fan, we did this so many years in a row. Just because they're the best quarterback available doesn't mean that they're a franchise quarterback that's going to be worth taking in the first round. So I, I say this year's crop maybe is one of the lesser talented ones that we've seen the last couple of years, I guess, have been down. but So I think, two, that that's probably where it's going to be for the first round this year.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious because when you look at all of these guys, Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, Matt Corral, Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter—these are all second-round at best talent guys to me. And I just I don't think any of these guys are worthy of being first-round guys. You know, Willis is a guy who started off at a Power Five, went to Liberty. Nobody had even heard of this guy until the draft process started. He wasn't even a guy who you know were like you were seeing these. Oh, here's this Malik Willis, and here's all these great things he's doing, even though he was at Liberty. Nobody. Nobody even heard of this guy. He just reminds me so much of Trey Lance, just because of it. it seems like everyone wants to to put him in this category because of potential and because he's got, you know, athletic ability and all this, you know, the, the dual threat and all this different stuff. And, you know, the 49ers a year later, I think they're pretty much regretting their pick of of Trey Lance. And Kenny Pickett had a great year. There's no doubt about that. But it took Kenny Pickett a heck of a long time to get there. And so I just don't know if this is a guy that you want to hang your hat on in the first round. If it were me, none of these guys would be drafted yeah. in the first round. But somebody's going to. Somebody's going to re- – you know. and if you get one of them late in the first round, I guess that's not quite as bad. But, you know, like the later first – I just – there's just none of them that I would want to hang my hat on in the first round. I, you know, there's, there's other talent that I think is out there that they can go get. I, would, I, I don't think any of them are, are worthy of going above this, the second round to
4: me. No, I think the quarterbacks that you mentioned are the, obviously the top of the class, but most of those guys are just um, the same thing that hurt Hamilton's what helps them. They're just really good at combines and drills. Yeah, and, and they're and they're and
1: quarterbacks. They're the you know they're the best of the quarterbacks and every You know, quarterback is obviously the premium position.
4: Right, and especially if you're later in the first round, you can take a flyer on one of these guys because you probably you're drafting based on potential, not on what they're doing. Like the opposite of Hamilton, where he's going to have to start his first year. A lot of those late first round teams. That's why they're late first rounds because they obviously have an established quarterback that got them to the playoffs. Yeah. So they can take a flyer or a risk on one of those guys. Like if you want to take Kenny Pickett, go for it. But do you have time to nurture him and let him grow instead of throwing to the Wolves, like seems to be the trend more and more when you draft him early. You talk about San Francisco. I think they regret their last two quarterbacks selected.
1: <laughs> You're probably In terms of Garoppolo
4: right. and Trey Land.
1: You're probably right. Well they didn't draft Garoppolo, but they traded right. for him anyway. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, we're gonna take a timeout when we come back. We've got a Colts question that uh, revolves around what they're going to do. They don't have a first round pick. Their earliest pick is in the second round. So we will talk about that when we return. Another White Sox player is injured. We'll talk about that when we come back. Bobby's a big White Sox fan. Of course, we've got all that and more still to come in the atrocious umpiring of Angel Hernandez, all to come on rapid fire on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Budweiser's weekday sports beat and rapid fire continue on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT with Bobby Hensley, Sean Stiers on this Monday. Hope you're having a good day after the weekend. Bobby is uh, circling around to Indianapolis right now. And the Indianapolis Colts don't have a first-round pick in this week's NFL draft. So here's my question, Bobby. Second round rolls around. We were just talking about the quarterbacks. Sam Howell from North Carolina is there. Should the Colts select Sam Howell with that second-round draft pick, or should they address an immediate need like wide receiver?
4: I think if you address an immediate need like wide receiver because that's a guy that can start for you right away. You get to use him, your new toy at the beginning of this season. Whereas if you draft a quarterback, you might have an even higher-up draft pick next year because of how bad you could be playing with no <laughs> weapons around a quarterback. I think you just need to make your team better now. And I think, like, you know, the last couple of years, you've been seeing teams more and more build without the draft. So if you can get a good piece through the draft that you can use immediately and then maybe address the quarterback next year at pre-agency or through a trade, You don't necessarily just have to take a quarterback and hope that you can groom him into something in a couple years and possibly waste that whole pick.
1: Yeah, they're in an interesting position because it's obviously – not necessarily transition year after they made the move to bring in Matt Ryan, but Ryan's 38, You know, so he's temporary. He's a stopgap-type guy. He's probably the highest-end-type guy that they could have hoped to end up with. So they're still going to need a quarterback – Obviously, within a few years, Sam Howell, like he is interesting to me because, you know, like we were just talking about, guys like Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, they seem to be the two guys with the best chance to go in the first round. And then you've got a guy like Matt Corral from Ole Miss, Howell from North Carolina, Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati, maybe more destined to go in the second round. Again, if it was me, they'd all go second rounder or later. But What, what makes, you know, so like what makes this a little bit more interesting for the Colts again, is the fact that you've, you're, you're bringing in a guy like Matt Ryan. So, you know, would you want to take a chance and draft a a guy, you know, with at least second round talent, which is higher than the Colts have picked a quarterback in recent years? Like they've, they've taken quarterbacks in each of the last couple of drafts, but they haven't Taken them this high. You know, so would you want to take a guy, sit behind Matt Ryan for a couple of years, and then maybe be your starter in, you know, next year or in year three, something like that. I agree with what you're saying, though, because I I think that the more immediate need is there because they've already, you know, Zach Pascal is with the Eagles now. T.Y. Hilton could still stay with the Colts, but he is older. He's got the history of injuries and it's not for sure that he's going to be back for the Colts. So as of right now, all they've got is Michael Pittman. And they were talking, you know, Chris Ballard did the press conference with the Indianapolis media last week and he was trying to play it coy like, oh, you know, we still like some of these guys we've got and blah, 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 and wasn't going to go out on a limb and saying, you know, they're going to draft a wide receiver. I think they have to take a wide receiver with the second pick and they probably got to take at least one more. You know, maybe in the third or or after that, as well. I it's it's the fact that that they were not able to do anything in free agency at the position. They've already lost one receiver, maybe another, and all they've got is Michael Pittman right now. Means they have to address wide receiver in this draft. So yeah, I I think that, you know, as as interesting as it could be, you know, like if a guy like Howell or Ritter, you know, is is there for them in the second round i just i think that you've it's a deep wide receiver draft so they can get some good quality in the second round at wide receiver who who should turn into a starter you know at, at, at least at some point this season so i think they've got to address it because you know that was still one of the issues they had last year as bad as Carson wentz was it was still a, a team that that needed playmakers at wide receivers so they have to address that i think with this draft that high
4: yeah, and like you said, if you can have a deep draft at that position that you need, you're in luck. Because in the second round, you already gave away your first round pick. So unless they have a grand plan of a trade or try trying to move up to get it, some they're just really hurting at one of the skill positions. And if you believe, and you have to believe that they think they're a playoff team based on the signing of Matt Ryan. Yeah. You know, you if not, you could have rolled with a lesser quarterback. So they're trying to make a run now in a division that's up for grabs kind of. I you have to be able to put all the put a position on the field. Like if you don't have enough receivers, what are you going to do? They don't even have enough depth to field the team right now at that position. Yeah, that's so, a, and Pittman's not a your pro bowl all-pro player either. So they got to do something there.
1: Well, and look at what the Bengals did last year obviously they took joe burrow two years ago and then they draft a receiver to go with him in the first round and they go to the super bowl last year now i'm not saying that drafting a wide receiver is necessarily going to put the colts right over the top but just what you said i mean it is still the afc south is a division that is there for them to win but they have not managed to get past the titans yet they've got to get more dynamic at, at a position like receiver because they've got the running back they've got you know a good veteran quarterback now he's he's an upgrade I think he's an upgrade over what they had even with Philip Rivers two years ago so you know they've 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 got that in place they've still got a good defense you've got to be a playmaker they've got a chance to win that division and the only way they do that is to add more playmakers on offense they've got to get more dynamic there so I think that's got to be addressed all right.
4: And especially at that position, because like you said, that running back Taylor, he's so good. Yeah. That you have an and your quarterback so talented, you have an opportunity to really exploit secondaries that are creeping in to try and stop the run. That's now right. Now you can throw it to your wideouts right down the field.
1: Yeah, they've already got Pittman. You give him another guy, and then maybe you bring back T. Y. Hilton, and that way that way Hilton doesn't have to have as big a role. If you know, if you can draft the kind of guy who can step in and play, you know, but that that can be a little dicey. You know, it's I, I think wide receiver in terms of the offense, wide receiver and quarterback are the two positions that, that can take a little bit longer, you know, to, to, to be able to get in and, and make impact right away. But I think if you find the right guy, I think that can happen. They've just – it's, you know, again, it's it, – <laughs> As bad as Carson Wentz was, he also didn't have much in the way of, tar- you know, legitimate targets last year. It's something that's got to be addressed.
0: All
4: right, right. Yep. Go ahead. I just say when you're that close to playoffs, I think you just got to go all in and see what you can do, whether it's through trade or draft. You got to try something.
1: I agree. Let's talk some baseball. Your White Sox fill in the blank. It's blank that Eloy Jimenez is the latest. White Sox player injured already this season?
4: Routine. This team keeps (laughs) getting injuries. Last year, Eloy and Luis Roberts, are two stud outfielders, both missed significant portions of the season with injuries. Luis Roberts was a hamstring. Eloy's is going to be a hamstring. I I read today it might be six to eight weeks, but they're missing. Their co-aces, Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito, have been out. It's just amazing how many pieces of this team that um, Yohan Mankata hasn't even played a game yet, and they just—it's hard to start the season hot when you don't even have half your starting team.
1: It doesn't help them that they've also committed eighteen errors, which I believe is the most in the American League. Now, I guess you could make a case that there's eighteen errors because of the fact that you know you don't have all your your best players out there, but eighteen errors don't help them much either. But, you know, eight guys on the injured list right now. Pollock and Giolito just came off the injured list. It is just amazing. And apparently, you know, I saw where they, you know, address some things, you know, with the training staff and, you know, the way they, they do things in the off season. So I don't know if they're just snake bit or if there's actually anything they can do to prevent this. Like when you're talking about the amount of hamstrings that it seems like they have, that seems preventable. But I don't know. They are just the, uh, the bad luck team of baseball right now. The, I mean, the bright spot for them is they're only a game and a half back, and the rest of the AL Central is still not that good. So, you know, if they can get these guys back, you know, they can just as easily go on a hot streak, I think, at some point, probably beginning with tomorrow night against Kansas City. But it's just, it's just amazing how many guys have been hurt already for the White Sox.
4: When you say snake bay, I, I suppose you're right, you know, you have that's what they did last year. They were missing so many key guys and it was almost amazing as a fan to watch them still lead the division by six, seven games all year. they lead really never really grew but never really shrank. So it's that's fine. And then you get your guys back and then they made the playoffs and then nothing happened. This year was supposed to be one more step forward, another yeah. year of maturity, another year of experience, the playoff experience now. And you're doing the same thing you did last year. Eloy missed most of last year. He's going to miss most of this year now. It, it's just amazing. But how many years in a row can you count on your division not being very good as a gold ticket to the playoffs? Because your backups might not be better than some of those bad teams in the, in the division. So that you can't keep relying on that because the Tigers are getting better. The twins are making an effort to get better. And as you get close to the deadline, if those teams are still in the hunt, they're going to make some trades and your trades there's going to be nobody because you're getting a guy off the injured list. Yeah.
1: Let me ask you this. Specific to Eloy, with these injuries now the last couple of years, again, pectoral last year, hamstring this year, would you consider making him the full-time designated hitter, you know, to kind of, you know, considering the injury history, take some wear and tear off him, that kind of thing?
4: Yes. Not only is he, like, injured, injury-prone now, he's still young. And last year's pectoral injury occurred when he tried to rob a home run and went mm-hmm. over the fence. Right. So that's kind of a freak injury. That's not a training staff issue. Right. Um, but yes, I think you limit a guy like that who he's a liability in the field anyway. He's not making Gold caliber plays, he's not right. making throws. So I think that you limit everything you can do with him. And that he's said he wants to play the outfield. That's his personality. And it was kind of, um, I read an article that LaRusso said if he bats well, they'll allow him to play the field. And plus, they are pretty shallow as outfielders, so I guess it kind of helps to have him out there. But he has to be the DH. And You have Abreu at first and Grandal at catcher, and those have been rotating through DH. Exactly. And I think you just need to make Eloy, that's his position, kind of like Jordán Alvarez does in um, Houston. He very rarely plays the field anymore because he had a bunch of injuries. Then last year, that guy batted 305 at 35 home runs, 100 RBI. That could be Eloy if you make him not play the field.
1: Yeah, I think at the very least, you've got to make him, you know, a bigger part of your DH rotation, you know, maybe if if he's DHing two out of every three days or something like that, you know, because, you know, now again, I I realize – when you get into when you've got this many players with injuries, it's it's never going to be a perfect situation. But I, I think that I think they have to consider something like that because of what you just said. One, you've got the injury history. Two, he's not that great an outfielder anyway. So,
4: yeah, the, like I said, though, the only problem is okay, that I think that all sounds lovely on paper. Who are you trying out left field? Yeah,
1: out? that's Dan exactly. Yep,
4: that's Jake right. Berger converting him into an outfielder because they're not going to be very defensive specialists, but. I just think it's worth it to have Elo in your lineup every day. And if you limit his outfield reps, I think that helps.
1: Yep. Angel Hernandez had quite the night last night. The uh, infamous umpire. We're going to take a timeout. Former Cub Kyle Schwarber had a little fun uh, with him (laughs) last night at the end of the uh, Phillies-Brewers game. We will talk about that as well as – the big guy Miguel Cabrera just got his 3,000th hit for the Detroit Tigers. We'll talk about that and more when uh, we put a wrap on things tonight. A couple more questions to go in rapid fire after this on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. All right, rapid fire in Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat winding down with Bobby Hensley, Sean Styers. Fill in the blank, Bobby. It's blank that umpire Angel Hernandez is the top trending baseball topic coming out of the weekend.
4: I think it's hilarious to <laughs> be the word I'd use. There's a guy, like, you know, as an umpire, if anybody knows your name, you know you really screwed up.
1: Yeah, that's true.
4: And that guy's been screwed up for so long, he's probably one of the last dinosaurs left that just is a complete mockery of the position. And I don't even know why he's still there.
1: And I mean, I guess if any of our listeners missed what happened last night, Angel Hernandez rung up Cal Schwarber on a pitch that was now, I've seen some people say it was a strike, you know, that it, you know, that it caught the, you know, the 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 low and away edge of the strike zone. It was it was borderline, but like to me he missed it. You know, like when they show the strike box and all that. Kind of stuff, according you know. There, there's some different. Um, uh, they're on Twitter, but there's some different groups, I guess, with like the metrics. There's a there's a Twitter account, and I don't have the name of the account off the top of my head, but it's like um, umpire scorecards or something to that effect, and they put up scorecards for every umpire after every game now, and I think it's actually pretty cool, but. According to them, he had 11 balls that he called strikes last night. He had an 85% uh, hit rate last night, which was uh, one of the lowest of the weekend, I guess. And, uh, you know, he called that strike on Schwarber. And Schwarber, you could tell by, you know, he, he, th- he flings his bat down and he's arguing and he's yelling at him. He gets ejected and all this stuff. Consistency was what Schwarber was talking about. And that's all anybody wants Is consistency because it's one thing to call a strike on a pitch that's just out of the strike zone, but you can't call both high strikes and low strikes that are outside the strike zone. You you know it's major league pitching. Guys have to know which part of the plate they've got to cover, and you can't call an outside strike zone. You know on on all the quadrants. You know, and that's what set Schwarber off. You can't call inside and outside and high and low because what are you going to cover now if you're Kyle Schwarber if you know if a guy is calling pitches off the plate you know all over both high and low and inside and outside he rang up six batters on pitches that were outside the strike zone last night he's a joke he's always been a joke you know he sues the league for discrimination the, you know, the suit gets thrown out and they're like, nope, you're just a bad umpire. You know, you haven't been discriminated against because he was – his whole suit was, you know, because he's a minority, you know, why isn't he working, you know, bigger games in the postseason? Well, you're not working bigger games because you get low scores. But, you know, the, the other side of that is he's also still allowed to umpire. You know, that's what I don't get. Like, if you're a major leaguer and and you're not able to, to, to hold your own weight – you either get sent down or released and you're done. But this guy's been umpiring at the major league level for over 30 years. What's the recourse for a guy like this? Are you really telling me that they can't can't find a better umpire than him?
4: Obviously there has to be a reason, and maybe the reason is the minority they want to keep him for that reason. Cuz maybe I don't know. But the stats speak for themselves. And now that they have stats for umpires. I think it's wonderful to see how Sometimes it's fun, like, to look at an umpire scorecard because I follow that Twitter account as well. Yeah. But when you see him, you go into that game knowing it's going to be a joke. And he's consistently awful. That's his consistency right there. Right. And, and a guy like Schwarber, you know, in his head, he knows that pitch coming in, if it's borderline he's pro- or even a ball, it's probably going to be considered a strike. And then he, you know, he loses his cool real quick, and he's ejected before he can even turn around. It, it, I just don't understand how you can allow whatever reason. There's, the proof is in the pudding that that guy shouldn't be behind the plate or anywhere on a baseball field. He shouldn't be sitting down. He should be out of the game. <laughs> he's had his run. He's never been successful. He's never been good. He knows he's a brand and a name, and he's the only umpire that sticks out like that. And he he takes that as probably he probably enjoys that. I don't know. Yeah, he shouldn't be around baseball though. He ruins the game.
1: The point that you made, the, I think the first point you made, the fact that everyone knows Angel Hernandez's name, you know that that speaks volumes because you, you know the, if the more umpires' names you know the the worse they probably are. And you know there there are a lot of umpires who we don't talk about by name, and it's because by and large they're probably doing a good job. All right, Bobby. Well, we got to wrap things up. Tonight, uh, safe travels the rest of the way home, and I will talk to you Thursday.
4: All right, I'll stop at a Waffle House for you. (laughs)
1: Okay, sounds good. (laughs) We're brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend, Tim Growl State Farm Insurance, Barnabys of Mishawaka and Granger, and the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. Budweiser's Weekday Sports Week. We will talk to you tomorrow, WSBT South Bend.